Welcome to the Life of Christ, Series 3, Term 1. This is Lesson 2. We are going to continue where we left off. Now it's on page 21 in my book. I'm not sure it's in yours. Page 21, good. At the top of the page, we have Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. We are talking about the fact that Jesus came and said in John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. This was very different to what the religious leaders at the time thought. They thought that God was going to come and condemn everybody. Jesus is saying, no, 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 He's not going to come and condemn. You're already condemned. He's coming to try and save all of you. Amen? But then we found that Amos brings out a fact that even though Israel didn't really accept the fact that it wasn't going to be a good day for some of them when the the Lord came, because they would be doing the wrong thing, and they weren't going to be exempt from everything they did just because they were Abraham's children. It didn't matter about all of that. As far as God was concerned, what's in your heart and who you were, that's what you're going to get judged on, not what your lineage was. Amen? And so, we came to the place where, as much as Jesus came to save everyone, the Jews were thinking that God came to condemn everyone, and Amos himself wrote and said, it's going to be a bad day for you guys when He comes, because all of what you're thinking, you know, all the, the privileges that you think you have, don't exist. It's not there. God doesn't favor anyone. He favors the righteous. Not just people that, oh, you're from Abraham's side. That's fine. You can sin. It's okay. You can still go to heaven. That's not going to happen. Amen? And so we came to the place of Jesus is now leveling this judgment, is the only way I can put it, against all these religious leaders that thought more of themselves than they ought to have thought. That had got to a place where they were stopping people from actually getting to the kingdom, getting into heaven, and they were doing the exact opposite of what God wanted them to do. And so he's been going through in Matthew chapter 23, and this, this is just a very short time before he's going to go to the cross. And now he's about to tell them what's going to happen. So we dealt with some of that at the beginning where he said, you people are stopping people. Not only are you not going into, into the kingdom, you're actually stopping other people from getting into the kingdom. And then he goes on in Matthew 23 and 23 and says, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. He keeps throwing the word hypocrites in there to let them know that these are your titles, but you don't deserve them. You say this is who you are. Because Pharisee meant something. Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. But he's saying, that's your name, but you're a hypocrite. You don't live up to your names. Okay. And so he says, for you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Wow. So he's saying, you pick at all the little things and say, well, we give tithes of everything, including all our spices. I mean, how ridiculous is that, you know? Seriously? See, this is self-righteousness. This is somebody that boasts their righteousness. Well, I gave 10% of all my spices last week. How about you? You see what I'm trying to say? So they just have this, this real superiority complex about them. And they're so amazing. And they're so like everything else. And Jesus is saying... I don't care about all that stuff. What I care about is faith. Did you exercise any faith last week? No. Were you just in the things that you did? Probably not. Hmm? Amen? Were you merciful? No. You were telling everybody they're going to hell. Verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, 
right, on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You know, they were, had this big deal about cleanliness, about washing, and everything had to be washed a certain way, and their couches were washed, and their dishes were washed, and everything was washed. You feel sorry if they had a cat. <laughs> the cat says, no, I clean myself, don't wash me. <laughs> a Pharisee cat, just stressed out all the time. <laughs> Verse 28, he says, even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men. Did you hear that? You appear righteous to men. You appear righteous to men, which means you look good to everybody. People used to have this whole deal about, you know, make sure that there's, there's no appearance of evil, that, you know, you, you always do things, always look good, and, and do the right thing in front of people and everything else. Boy, I tell you, they used to do that, and people were very religious and very right-looking on the outside, but my goodness, if you ever went to their home and looked at what was going on, wow. Amen. Okay, and I'm not talking about stuff maybe you're thinking of. I'm talking about people, husbands and wives fighting, and kids just hating their mom and dad, and everything else. And on the outside, oh, we're a wonderful family. We had one of those in one of the churches I went to. They just looked all so proper and upright and everything. Come to find out later on, husband is beating the wife, and the kids are all rebelling and doing all sorts of things. And It was a mess. But boy, they all come nicely dressed to church. And they all sit, all look all really nice. They hate each other, but they all look really nice. <laughs> Amen. Okay? Alright. So he says, Indeed, you appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. He says, Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You have two faces. One for church and one for every other day of the week. Alright. And he says, and lawlessness. Now, I want you to notice that lawlessness are people that don't do the right thing. Don't do what is lawful. Did you get that? Okay. So you can be, now here's something. You can be religious and lawless. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 33. He just puts the last nail in the coffin and says, Serpent, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? In short, he's saying, you're all going to hell. And there's no way you're going to escape it, the way you're going at the moment. Now that is to Jewish religious leaders. In essence, the Jews never really understood nor accepted the fact that the gospel was for the entire human race. And they were chosen to do a job, not chosen to be exclusive. Did you get that? Because they're always on about we're chosen people. You know, when somebody gets chosen, is to do something. But like Jonah, they wanted and later deceived themselves into actually believing that God's love and favor was exclusively for them. And the only thing that God had for everyone else was wrath and judgment. Amen. Okay? So they just believed, ooh, you know, as far as God's love was concerned, that was just for them. God would love them and, and take care of them, you know. But everybody else, well, tough. And so because of their selfish, self-centered attitude, they reap the exact opposite with Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. He says, And I say to you, that many will come from the east and west, all right, referring to all the Gentile nations, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
referring to all the Jewish fathers in the kingdom of heaven. Let's stop there for a second. Jesus giving us a picture which is very interesting now, which the Jews can't comprehend. They can't fathom this picture. He's saying all the people that you alienated, they're going to be sitting with your father, Abraham. All these people that you thought that the Jews are meant to look down their noses at, are going to be sitting at the same table with the person that you revere so highly. Okay? Your forefathers, so to speak, they're going to be sitting at the table, with, not on the bottom. Okay? Looking for crumbs on the ground. They're going to be sitting at the table with them. So this is like a big thought. This is something they just can't... They're not going to accept this, obviously. Okay? But the sons of the kingdom, now this is referring to all the Jewish leaders opposing the Lord and expecting to go to heaven based solely on the fact that they are Abraham's children, okay, the Jews, okay, will be cast into outer darkness or cast out into outer darkness, referring to hell, okay, and why it goes and say that there, there will be weeping, okay, that is great sorrow and gnashing of teeth, re, that, that refers to great anger. So they're going to be greatly sorrowful and really mad. Why do you think? Because they thought that they were all going to heaven and all the Gentiles are going to hell. And what's going to happen? The Jews are going to be in hell and the Gentiles in heaven. That would make you mad if you were a Jew. Are you all here? Okay? So this is why he throws that at them. And he says, what you think is going to happen, the exact opposite is going to happen. Alright, William Hendrickson reiterates all this and says that verse 17, now we're going back to John chapter 3 verse 17, clearly indicates that God's redemptive purpose was not confined to the Jews, but embraces the world, men from every tribe and nation. And that the primary object of Christ's first coming was not to condemn, but to save. So Jesus came to save. He didn't come to condemn. And He came to save the whole world. Praise God. That was you, that was me. Because last time I looked, I, I ain't a Jew. <laughs> okay? But praise God, I'm one of God's kids. Which is a higher status than being a Jew. That's why the Apostle John says, Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called, not Jews, but the children of God. There was such a thing there. And again, remember, he's, he actually, they believe that he actually went to heaven before he actually wrote the gospel that he wrote and the epistles that he wrote, which makes sense why he started. His gospel in the beginning was the word, like Genesis, and the word was with God and the word was God. He saw it and he then understood everything that went on in a whole different light, which is why his gospel is so different to all the others. Praise God. Anyway, further to all of this, Leon Morris points out that Jesus came to bring salvation but the very fact of salvation for all who believe implies judgment on all who do not. This is a solemn reality and John does not want us to escape it. That's why he says, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not have some sort of eternal punishment, but have eternal life. And so, we're seeing again the difference between believing and not believing. It's a simple step to go to heaven. It's a simple step to receive eternal life. Believe. And like somebody said, and yet it's so difficult at the same time. All right? And the sad thing is, if you don't believe, the exact opposite then happens. So even though, and see, this is, 
if you can catch this, I, I hope you catch this as I, as I give it to you. As great as the salvation is, as much as Jesus Christ came to save a world that is already condemned, the penalty and the payment for refusing that gift is just as bad on the negative side as the gift is on the positive side. Do you understand? As good as the gift is, it is that bad when you say no to it. And so the reason that people are going to hell now is not because God's mad with them, it's because they rejected a free gift. So God said, I did everything to get you out. If you reject that, then it's no longer my fault. This is your choice. You're now going to hell based on what you decide. I've made it free. I've made it simple. It says even a wayfaring fool can get this. <laughs> okay, then you don't have to have brains to get this. Sometimes I think the brains get in the way. But he says, this is so simple, anybody can get it. That's why I also have issue with people that say, oh, you have to learn and know all. That comes from intellectual people. That's not from God, that's intellectual people that, you know, they see all the intricacies and you have to know this and know this and know this and know this. Man, nobody can get saved for some of those people. Listen, all you have to do is believe. The Apostle Paul put it so simply, if you believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you're in, end of story. Okay, and that's something God will help you with. You don't have to, fig- you don't have to figure that one out. You just know you are serving a living God. Because you can hear Him. He's talking to you. Amen. Dead people don't talk. Well, some people think they do, but... (laughs) You know what I'm saying. All right. Let's move on. Finally, William MacDonald writes, I'm over the page, The work of the Lord Jesus on the cross was of such tremendous value that all sinners everywhere could be saved if they would just receive Him. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? Jesus then continues on to say, in verse 18, John chapter 3 and verse 18, He who believes in Him, talking about Himself, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Do you understand that now? Do you understand when He says is condemned already, is because Jesus came to an already condemned world. He didn't come to condemn them, He came because they were already condemned. He came to save them. Amen? It says, he who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Because you didn't take that gift, you remain that way and you continue to be that way. Okay. First of all, in his commentary, William MacDonald points out that in the Bible, the name stands for the person. If you trust his name, you trust him. Therefore, believing in his name is the same as believing in him. If a man will not believe on the Lord Jesus, God can do nothing else but condemn him. Now, understand, that's already happened. Okay? Alright. Next, William Hendrickson says this, Jesus divides all of those to whom the message of salvation is presented into two groups, each of which is represented by one individual. First, the one who abides in Christ by faith is not judged. No sentence of condemnation will ever be read against him. Even now, he is in the eyes of God without guilt. One of the biggest problems that human society is suffering with is guilt and condemnation. A lot of the um, bad behavior, a lot of the sicknesses, a lot of the things that are going on in the human race is because of this. 
if at the root of it. Now it comes out, there are all kinds of branches and leaves, but the root is this. Alright? A lot of people don't see this. Because if they truly believed that they were saved, if they truly believed that they were going to heaven, if they truly believed that God was holding nothing against them, if they truly believed that, you would treat everybody differently. Because you would have such a freedom on the inside of you. Are you here? That you just be a ray of sunshine everywhere you go. Because you just know God's not going to hold anything against you. You do anything wrong, first John 1, 9, you're done, you move on. End of story. Amen? And so you have this light on the inside. So Jesus said, you're meant to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Okay? You're meant to be the sort of person that always brings hope to people. Do you know why? Because you live in that hope. That is a part of your life. That is a part of who you are. Amen? You are going to heaven. There's no question about it. You don't have to beg and scrape and do all sorts of good things. You're going, man, now. How do you want to get there? Who do you want to take with you? It's not a matter of, I need to get there. You're already there. What are you going to do about it? Huh? Amen. Okay. The one who abides in Christ by faith is not judged. No sentence of condemnation. No sentence. Remember, because heaven is like a court. Okay, John talks about that. And again, very interesting. Uh, when we look at First John chapter 1, and uh, into the sort of verse 9, 10, and then we go into First John chapter 2 and verse 1, he starts talking about that Jesus Christ is your defense attorney, which means that the accuser of the brethren, regardless of what he's saying, you have Jesus as your defense attorney. That's why if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse your word on righteousness, get you off scot-free from heaven's court. Because the whole thing is rigged because God is the judge. Okay, so you can see the accuser of the brethren coming in, and then you see God's son coming in. You can just see that this is going to, you know which way this is going. It's all rigged. And thank God, because none of this would be needed if the devil didn't do what he did. If he didn't go and tempt mankind back then in Genesis, none of this would be occurring right now. So yeah, man, it's rigged for our favor. Because the devil was the one that instigated it, nothing goes his way. He's been trying to convince everybody that it does, but it doesn't. We just need to realize that and go to God to, and ask Him for forgiveness as soon as we do something wrong. Understand, the whole system is rigged for you to be set free, but you have to ask. Second, now this is the other side. The one who rejects Christ by not believing in Him as God's only begotten Son does not need to wait for the final judgment as if the verdict would be postponed until then. Already, by the very fact of his obstinate unbelief, he has been, and therefore stands, condemned. Wow. So you don't have to wait till the end to find out. The moment that you reject Jesus Christ, that's it. Just like the moment you receive Him, you're on your way to heaven. See, your eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It began when you said yes to Christ. You have eternal life now. That's the reason why we're meant to be using that eternal life to do so much more. Let me say that again. The, this, is, this here is the heart of it. It tells us that right now we have eternal life. Right now we have the life of God flowing in us. Problem is we, we're not getting it out. We don't know how to release it. That's why Jesus said, if you can believe, 
All things are possible because the life is already there. The power is already there. It's like a computer that has everything in it to do anything. But the person doesn't know how to switch the thing on. You know, where is the on switch at? <laughs> how, how do we turn this on? If we can just get it on, it'll do everything. Now, in terms of believing, John MacArthur writes, this phrase means more than mere intellectual assent to the claims of the gospel. So this is not a mind thing, okay? It includes trust and commitment to Christ. That's a hard thing, all right? As Lord and Savior, which results in receiving a new nature. Verse 7, which produces a change in heart and obedience to the Lord. This is a lifestyle, okay? It includes trust and commitment, all right? As you trust and commit to God, you receive a new nature. You receive a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Remember that? All things are passed away. So all of this comes as a result of believing Jesus Christ. You become this new creature. Where all the old things are passed away, all things are new, all things are of God. The sad thing is it has to work through an imperfect, unrenewed mind, generally. That's where all the problems are. The power is in there, we just don't know how to release the thing. Because our mind gets in the way. Oh, but that's impossible. Oh, that's silly to think that way. No, it's silly not to, in God's eyes. Notice it also produces a change in heart and obedience to the Lord. That's something that is so special, because one of the biggest problems that people have is that animosity in their heart towards God and towards people. When that changes, you know, you've, we've seen some extraordinary things happen when people have given their life to Christ. They've gone from being this horrible, hard-hearted, mean, you know, and all those are the good qualities, okay, <laughs> you know, to this big teddy bear that you think, my goodness, what happened? Now they just give you a big hug. And you kind of feel awkward. Why is he hugging me? <laughs> you know? These are real stories. People have just changed. And there's a miracle. People say, I don't believe there's a God. Look at what happened. Tell me that God didn't do that. And it's genuine. They're not pretending it's genuine. They totally changed. They are a brand new creature. A brand new creation. All the old things have passed away. Something wonderfully new has happened. Faith is of the utmost importance in this whole process. I'm moving on now, okay? Without it, without faith, there is only condemnation. Remember, you need to receive this by faith. Amen? Alright? Without it, there is only condemnation. And while Leon Morris, in his commentary, says that John proceeds to bring out the importance of faith, he, he has said that Christ died for people. But that does not automatically bring salvation. We're on the next page. No one is saved without believing. Anyone who exercises faith is not condemned or judged. All right? For that person, judgment is not to be feared. But anyone who does not believe persistence in unbelief is meant, does not have to wait until judgment day. That person is condemned already. So Morris concludes now by saying, His, that is Jesus' coming or return, gives people the opportunity of salvation and challenges them to a decision to refuse His good gift is to call down judgment on oneself. Wow. Okay? You're the one that calls judgment down on yourself when you say no to Christ. Get that? 
Okay. In fact, D.A. Carson points out, already in need of a saviour before God's Son comes on his savings mission, this person compounds his or her guilt by not believing in the name of that Son. As with the arrogant critic who mocks a masterpiece, it is not the masterpiece that is condemned, but the critic. In other words, all the intellectuals who would want to argue their case will be allowed to do so. And when it is all over, there will be only one question asked of them. Why did you refuse to believe in the only thing that could have saved you and that was offered to you free of charge? There's the question. Forget all your intellectual pursuits, forget all of the stuff that you're going to say, well, I deserve to come to heaven, blah, 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 because of all this stuff. God's going to go, forget about all of that, because you can't, none of that's going to work for you. Here's the question. It was free. Why did you reject it? And Jesus actually answers this question, and we'll finish with this, and pick this up next week. Jesus answers this question in the next verse, and says in John 3.19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The reason that they rejected the light was because of what they were doing. Not what they did or did not want to believe, what they were doing. Their deeds were evil. And we are going to see that next time we come back. All right. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's conclude for tonight. <laughs>